I think scripture is pretty clear about what is right and what is wrong. And who are we to question that? The real question is, why is there a right and a wrong? Doesn't God know how hard it is for everybody to believe the same thing? Everybody's going to do something wrong. Nobody's perfect. So why did God make up all these rules anyway? I've always wondered about that. Which leads me to my next question. Why do we even have the rules? If the Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God, then that's okay. We're sinners. That's who we are. It seems to me that God would want us to accept everybody for who they are, for who they love, for what they do, for what they believe. Why not be all-inclusive? I'm Pam, and I'm the church. Well, thank you for being at the Hills on this chilly weekend. I hope you enjoyed that clever little video footage making fun of me at the start of the service. Now, that was the brainchild of Jeremy Epps, who said, Rick, can we just get some film of you walking through the church? He did not tell me what it was going to be used for. And it was funny, and it was creative, like Jeremy. And pray for Jeremy. He's uh, searching for work this weekend. (laughs) And we wish him well. We're in a series called Seven. We're looking at Jesus' letters, not really just to seven churches, but to all his churches. My son, my youngest, is a freshman in college. And this past summer, before he headed off to college, he really did ask me this. He said, Dad... I don't know how to flirt. Can you teach me anything about how to flirt? And I've thought a lot about that because his mother and I want all three of our children to find strong Christian mates should God be calling them to marry. And so I wanted to give him some advice that would ensure that the girl he flirted with was a strong Christian girl. So I'm going to email him this week, 10 possible Christian pickup lines. I'm bouncing them off you for some feedback. (laughs) Number 10, what are you doing for the rest of your afterlife? Number nine, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? Number eight, let's be like Noah and do this as a pair. And number seven, uh, do you want to be accountability partners? Number six. How many times do I have to walk around you to make you fall for me? Let's find out if she knows her Old Testament. Number five, is it hot in here or is that just the Holy Spirit burning inside of you? Uh, Number four, I may not have a job right now. I may live in my parents' basement, but I swear to you, I'm storing up treasure in heaven and my mansion is going to rock. And number six, you're perfect, except for your sin nature. Uh, Number two... So I was reading the book of Numbers the other day, and I realized I don't have yours. (laughs) And my number one pickup line that I suggest is, excuse me, I believe one of your ribs belongs to me. (laughs) Now, 
as you can quickly surmise, I really do not know much about flirting, which is actually a good thing because I am a happily married man. I plan to stay that way. I don't need to know much about flirting. And neither does the bride of Christ. And I'm going to tell you in advance, this teaching today and the one next week are going to be hard to preach and hard to hear. And I'm already nervous about the emails that I anticipate. Because Jesus loves his church too much not to tell her what she may not want to know. Chapter 2, verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or... I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. And they wanted to receive that stone. They wanted to get that new name. But it wasn't easy. It's never been easy to be faithful to Christ, and especially when you live in Satan's hometown. And that's what Jesus said. You live where Satan has his throne. You live in his town. In fact, one of their own members, Antipas, was recently put to death by the local government. Now, if one of the members of our church was put to death this week by our local government for being a Christian, how many of us would want to come to church next Sunday? In what way was Satan's throne in Pergamum especially? Pergamum was the capital of the province of Asia. It's where the governor lived. The governor who had the right of the sword. He could decide on the spot whether or not you were disloyal to Rome and have you executed. Pergamum loved Rome. In fact, this picture you see is one of the three temples in Pergamum 
built to Roman emperors. This one was the temple for Trajan. This is a place that has no problem saying Caesar is Lord and expects you to have no problem saying it either. And they didn't just worship Rome. They worshiped many gods. This next picture is the location where the altar to Zeus used to be. And the next picture is the temple of Athena. And the next picture is particularly interesting to me. You see that snake figure? That was to the god Asclepius, the god of healing. Have you noticed that even today in the medical community, the symbol for medicine has a snake on it? It goes all the way back to the worship of this god. In Pergamum, there was a famous hospital where people would come for healing, where there were shamans and there were witch doctors and there were magic arts practiced, where there was much demonic activity. This is a city where Satan is at home. It's the kind of city where there's lots of temptations for Christians to have affairs. Because the challenge of the Christians in Pergamum is the same challenge we have today in relation to the world. How do we live in the world but not of the world? How do we do that? And notice that Jesus does not counsel forming a Christian ghetto. He does not say, isolate yourself from the city and form your own little tight Christian community and avoid the world. Light has to shine in darkness, not shy away from it. And so the more difficult the circumstances make it to be a Christian, the more we need some Christians in those circumstances. We need Christians in the political arena, in the arts and in the theater community, in the business world and on Wall Street. We need Christians in those places where the light is desperately needed. I know this is hard. I know as a father, if the school down the street is full of drugs and violent crime, I might want to send my kids somewhere else to school. I know I'm not going to buy a house right next to a topless bar. But I also know that when Jesus said, you are light and you are salt, the idea is that I can put you in a place so that you will make that place better because you're there. How is the world going to know that it's broken and in need of redeeming unless it strikes up hard against An alternative version of living. And so this means the church must always do the hard work of determining how we can engage our culture without compromising our nature. The one word used of Christians more than any other in the Bible is saints. That means set apart. You're holy people. How do we we get in the world? Without crossing the line that compromises our calling to be different. You've heard me use the illustration. If you were to come to my house and have dinner with my family, you might go into the kitchen and sit at a table and take a seat. And you don't know that you sat in my seat. Because at my house, there's one seat that's set apart for me. It's always my seat. But I wouldn't throw a fit or tell you to leave. That's low level holiness. I'd just let you sit there. 
And after supper, you might say, I didn't have a chance after my workout to clean up. Could I take a shower? I'd take you back to my shower. The kids have a bathroom. Jamie likes to take a bath in the tub. I take showers. And then I'm the only one that uses the shower. I'd let you use it. Low-level holiness. Then after your shower, you would say, Rick, I forgot my toothbrush. Can I use your toothbrush? You just crossed the line. Because my toothbrush is set apart for me. High-level holiness. Now, in a more serious way, we are constantly asking those questions as Christians. How do I live in the world but not let the world live in me? It's easy to see why there was great temptation in Pergamum for Christians just to dim their lights. And some teachers came along that made them feel good about it because they had a new teaching that advocated flirting. They were called the Nicolaitans. Next week we'll see they were called the people who followed the teaching of Jezebel. And what they said was, do you see what's happening to us because we act so different? We have got to chill and ratchet down our standards. They weren't advocating divorce from Jesus. They were just advocating flirting with the world, particularly when it came to moral standards. And Jesus had a problem. I've got a complaint against you. You tolerate some among you. Notice, this isn't being taught outside the church. This is being taught in the church. And Jesus is saying, why do you think I would be okay with you tolerating people that are going to harm our marriage? His brother James put it this way in chapter 4 of his little book. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And so Jesus says something that I find to be one of the most sobering and convicting statements that ever came out of his mouth. And I got to tell you, it's been doing a job on me all week. He said, repent or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them. With the sword of my mouth. So he's saying three powerful things. Number one, he's saying, I got a sword too. You're worried about the governor's sword, but you haven't been remembering my sword. I've got a sword. And number two, he's saying, you're always saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, there's a kind of coming you don't want me to do. There's a kind of time or way that I come to a church and it's not pretty. And you're close to that moment. And number three, and this is the most convicting. He says, I'm going to come quickly. And I'm going to fight against them. But it's on you. Because you did nothing. You said nothing when that toxin began to seep 
into my church. Repent. He's calling us to repent of being comfortable with flirting going on in the church. Why would we let that happen? Why would we create a context where it's conducive for people to have affairs in the church? Well, the reason hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We, we baptize friendliness. We ground friendliness in the guise of love. Friendliness grounds tolerance in the guise of of love because tolerance not truth tolerance is the number one virtue in culture and so we say well i shouldn't judge anybody i'm just supposed to love everybody and we know that jesus told the church in ephesus your problem is there's a definite lack of love but in pergamum he's saying your problem is there's a lack of definite love you're Love is wishy-washy. It has no standards. It has no boundaries. Is it loving to tolerate ideas and behaviors that are incongruent with the character and the will of Jesus? How can the love of Jesus go past the truth of Jesus? He said, speak the truth in love. He didn't say, because you love, don't speak the truth at all. You see, a lot of Christians today want their spirituality like their food. See, the new thing now in marketing food is to give people all choices. I guess the Subway people started years ago. You get a sandwich at Subway and you say, I want some of that, but I don't want any of that. I want just a little bit of that, but leave that off. Now you go to Chipotle and you get your burrito the same way. You go down to the Pie 5 store, you get your pizza the same way. And a lot of people are crafting their spirituality the same way. I love Jesus. I do uh, That whole, if someone needs your coat, give them your cloak. Love that. Give, give me some of that, please. But that stuff he said about divorce, what's well, that's hard for my system. I don't want any of that. Um, but I, I do want a little bit of that turn the other cheek. That could be nice. That stuff about cutting off your hand, if it's causing you to sin, that's way too hard for my heart. And so that's why people are saying, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Because religion comes with rules and boundaries. And so we have crafted spirituality that is comfortable for us. But here's the problem. When you said, Jesus is Lord, you gave up the right to call the shots. And I understand the pressure. Nobody wants to be called a bigot or a Pharisee. But the church is in big trouble when her favorite color is gray. Beliefs and behaviors that are inconsistent with the truth of Jesus have to be dealt with. 
and it is hard. I understand this more than most of you. I'll give you a very real example. You know anybody's welcome to come to this church. It doesn't matter what you think or what you're doing. You are welcome here. But if you reach the point that you want to identify, be a part of our church, we're going to ask you, is Jesus your Lord? And sometimes when we have those conversations, I meet a young couple, and they're not married, but they're living together. They're having sex outside the covenant like Jesus taught. And we have to talk about that. Or sometimes they may have a same-sex relationship, which is outside what Jesus taught. And sometimes that couple will say, Jesus is Lord. We're going to separate. We're going to live apart until we can marry and practice sex the way Jesus said. Sometimes that same-sex couple may say, you know, we may always deal with same-sex attraction But Jesus is Lord, and so we're going to live celibate lives. And sometimes people get angry. They tell me I'm hateful. They tell me I'm a bigot. They call me a hypocrite, and they call me some other things I don't want to repeat. And it hurts because I like to be liked. But I know that my temptation to want to please people must bow before the Lordship of Jesus. That because I love Jesus, I must love people in a way that might seem intolerant to them. But is actually holy to Jesus. That faithfulness is more important than friendliness. And faithfulness grounds purity in the authority of Christ. Jesus is reminding his church who he is. I'm the one with the two-edged sword that comes from my mouth. In other words, you're worried about the governor's sword. I've got a sword. You're worried about Satan's throne. I've got a throne. And the call to live in the world, but not of the world, means believing that the prince of this world is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign. It's Christ alone we bow to. It's Christ alone we live for. I spent too much time as a young minister answering the wrong questions. I call them friendship questions. Well, how short can a skirt be before it's too short? Well, how much can you drink before you drink too much? Well, how many nasty words does a movie have to have before it has too many nasty words? And what are the nasty words? I realize now, instead of trying to answer all the friendship questions, I should have just told people to answer the lordship question. Who is your Lord? 
Get that one figured out. And then live your life so that in any situation you can say, right here, right now, I can give honor to Jesus. Answer that question. And you don't need a lot of rules. Just honor Jesus. His desire for purity in his marriage is a moral excellence, not a flaw. Just like mine for my wife. I expect her 100% complete allegiance. I'm jealous for it. Not because I'm a bad husband, because I'm a good husband. Jesus is not going to change his mind about this. But he wouldn't mind if some of us would change ours. Michael Hargrove says, there's a day in my life that changed my life forever. I'm in the airport. And this younger man comes off a flight and his family's there to meet him. And he catches a seven-year-old boy that runs and jumps in his arm and gives him a big hug and kiss. Walks over to his 10-year-old boy, ruffles his hair, talks about how much he's grown and what a man he's becoming. Grabs an 18-month-old little girl who squeals with delight as he hugs and kisses her and then says, I saved the best for last and gave his wife a big, huge hug and passionate kiss. And Michael's watching this and he says to the young man, he says, how long have you been married? 12 years. And how long have you been gone? Two whole days. And Michael Hargrove said, I hope that my marriage will have this much passion after 12 years. And here's the line that changed his life. Don't hope, friend. Decide. Decide that your level of allegiance will never be compromised. Now, if you're watching online or listening on podcast and you're not a Christian, this sermon's not for you. I've got some sermons for you. This isn't one. I have no business judging the behavior of people who do not call Jesus Lord. That's not my job. This sermon is for people who call themselves Christians. Asking you to honor your marriage. No wife who loves her husband. Ask him how close to the line can I get to cheating on you. Before I've gone too far. And so I want you to stop thinking. You can flirt with the world. And never have an affair. It is a lie that the deceiver is sowing. Reject it. My heart breaks by all the examples I see of flirting. Recently on Facebook, I saw some Christian sisters post how excited they were. It was girl movie night. Going to go see Magic Mike. Magic Mike, an R-rated movie about male stripping, is going to bring honor to Christ? 
I saw a post on Facebook, a table full of alcoholic drinks. Don't tell me that it's not wrong to have a glass of wine. I know that. But the post said, it's been a stressful day. I can't wait to get to this. Really? So we're telling the world that when we as Christians are under stress and need to calm our spirit, we need a bottle. That's our answer. I'm not even going to check my email this week. (laughs) One more. I see posted recently on Facebook more than one Christian sister asking, should they read the book Fifty Shades of Grey? It's a bestseller that promotes immorality, non-covenant sex, bondage, and masochism. And the lie of the enemy is that reading this kind of material will improve your love life. It will even help your marriage. My sister, if you're reading literature like that, you are deceived. You cannot flirt like that and wind up in a good place. When I stood before my wife and I said yes to her, I understood. That means I will say no to anybody or anything that would ever question my yes to her. John put it like this. The love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father. So stop flirting. Stop flirting. Everyone my age will remember this video clip. It was the beginning of a popular sports show for several decades. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport. The thrill of victory. That poor guy was the agony of defeat for decades. (laughs) They would change the thrill of victory every now and then, but he was always the agony of defeat. But here's the rest of the story. He didn't fall off that jump accidentally. He's going down the slope. The ice had gotten too quick and slick. He was going too fast. He knew if he went off the jump, he would miss the landing area and where he would wind up could kill him. He made the courageous but hard choice to get off the path he was going down. If you're flirting with the world, you're flirting with disaster. What did Jesus say? It is important for the church to listen to the Spirit. And so bow your head, please, in the next few moments. Just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And be open if there's an area of your life you haven't even thought about that might be flirting.
Don't be angry if the Holy Spirit says things that are hard to hear. It's only because He loves you and He wants you to love Jesus. Let's all stand. Prayer team, come take your place, please. This is your chance now to respond. He's calling some of you to be married to Christ, and it starts with getting baptized. He's calling some of you to make your marriage better. Come talk, come pray. Let's spend the next few minutes and let's obey what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church.